Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 2 Peter as we continue on our study of this really important book, particularly in light of the world in which we live today. One of the great failures of the modern church, at least in my opinion, is not their ability or inability to get doctrine right or to put together a theological system that is coherent, uh, that is uh, concise, that uh, communicates what we believe. The failure is in making application to that truth, to somehow taking those beliefs and holding them up against a culture and a society where we can assess what's really going on and provide hope and promise to a world at large. I think one of the reasons our our children walk away from the faith is that they've been taught all of the right things, but they've not been taught how to think through that process. And and what does this all mean? We will find very similar things happening in the context of Peter's second epistle. In verse 1 of 2 Peter, chapter 1, we read, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue to virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Or whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly divide there for in this way. Uh, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me, please. Father, I would ask that as we reflect upon the singing this morning, as we reflect upon Peter's words inspired by the Holy Spirit at a particular time in a particular place, a space in the continuum of history, he was writing to address the critical matters of that day, not just inside, but without doubt outside the church as well. I pray that as we understand what he is communicating, that 
we wouldn't disconnect that from reality and continue to fill our minds with good thoughts or even what we perceive to be sound theology, that somehow we would understand how this fleshes out, what this means in our everyday lives, in our understanding of the times in which we live, being able to discern and to give instruction to our children and our children's children and even beyond, that we might be able to speak into a culture where such emptiness prevails, filling that void with a hope and the promise, the Scripture, even the very things that Peter addresses in this epistle. And in the end of the day, I pray that we might find great encouragement in deeply divisive and trying times. May our hope be rooted in Christ alone. May the truth change our thinking, our behavior, our actions. May that message of hope be taken to a lost and dying world if we really believe what we say we believe, so that you might be glorified and all might be prepared for that day that is to come. Encourage us. Your Spirit teach us, challenge us. Most importantly, glorify yourself through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Peter in the text is writing to a similar audience than he wrote to in 1 Peter, but perhaps not an identical audience. First Peter, he was addressing the issue of persecution and some of the deeply disturbing things that were happening in the culture, even politically, as that persecution was ramped up for political means to somehow make Christians a scapegoat for all of the problems of the culture and society. In Second Peter, he is addressing perhaps some of those same people, but in a greater way, a greater number of people in Asia Minor dealing with doctrinal issues and how the world has kind of crept into or slipped into the church. I'm not sure uh, many of us really give the right kind of attention to this. Whereas Peter might not speak in overtly political or cultural terms, make no mistake, he was addressing what was happening on the ground here and now in time and space when he wrote. And there were some really perilous things happening, just like there are today. The difference today is the bombardment of social media and the access of the internet. Most of the believers in Peter's time weren't so absorbed in the culture that their minds were being programmed or deprogrammed in, in twisted truth. They simply weren't exposed to it. They, they came out from that culture. They were persecuted by that culture. All they had was each other and the truth. Today, it seems like oftentimes truth is relegated to what we do in ministry environments, not to what we do in our everyday life. And whether we like it or not, all of these messages, overt or subliminal messages, impact our thinking. They, they alter our thinking. They challenge our thinking. And unless we're going to be good thinkers, we will be taken captive by these vain philosophies. That's why Peter says time and time again in this text, know and knowing, know and knowing, known, know, knowing. It matters. Not just filling your head, but, but it matters. 
And as an appointed apostle, he is preparing the people in Asia Minor, the recipients of this second letter, for what is coming next. Now, what's really important is he is preparing them for what's coming next because of his impending martyrdom. He knows as an apostle, he's not going to always be there to help them negotiate the world, to point out the issues of twisted truth, to to somehow protect them. Perhaps the same problem that exists today existed back then. We are expecting some professional class to do the work of engaging the mind and telling us what to do, and Peter is shifting that emphasis and saying, it's your job. Every one of you needs to be aware of what the Scriptures say, and you must embrace that truth and live that truth, because he wouldn't be with them much longer prior to his martyrdom, and he is writing to prepare them to build their lives upon objective truth. And when they build their lives on objective truth, to beware of those false teachings and false teachers both in and out of the church that could affect the way they see things. We know that in the text there were two things in particular that Peter addresses. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he warns false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. It is happening now. It will continue to happen, and these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, pernicious lies, twisted truth, even denying the master who bought them. Their truths will fly in the face of everything they claim to be true, bought by a price, saved under the Christian banner or label bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They have gotten to the place, these false teachers, of of coming out of the culture and bringing this cultural mores, morality, and ethos into the church now under the banner of Christianity, but it is a sensual lifestyle. We'll get into that a little bit coming weeks, but it's a a lifestyle of living in the flesh. It's living for me. I make the rules. I decide what's right and wrong. Nobody can tell me what to do. And it was a dangerous heresy. So we spend our lives pursuing the lust of the flesh and the things that we desire and the things that we want. And, And John talks about that, the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and the pride of life, we're all suspect to that. But because of their certain perspective, they claimed the name of Christ, but they lived life on their terms in their sensuality. No one was going to tell them what to do. And he's talking about the sensuality that existed in the Roman Empire, a perverse empire where right became wrong and wrong became right. And I can't help but see the parallels to our culture today. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It doesn't mean that they're incapable of communicating. It doesn't mean that they're cunning in their communication. It means that their communication is very self-serving. They will make you think it's about you, but it's really about them. The fulfilling of the sensuality that's driven them in life 
Peter says their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. What is he talking about? Why does he keep talking about judgment and and destruction? Why does he keep talking about being accountable somehow at some point in time? Well, I'm glad you asked. We go a little bit further into the text and look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, these, these false teachers were questioning the return of Jesus as conqueror and king. They seemed to be rejecting this notion that there was a day of accountability coming that goes hand in hand with sensuality. If there's no accountability, I can do whatever I want to do. I can live according to the flesh. There are no rules other than the rules I make up. As long as you deny the ultimate accountability to God, as long as you deny the fact that He is coming as conqueror and king, and everyone will stand before Him in judgment, you can continue on your way feeling good about your lifestyle. So Peter, addressing this denial of coming and judgment, says in verse 8, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come or reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter says there is a coming day of judgment, and everyone will give an account and answer. Don't be led astray by these false teachers who are so self-consumed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Now he brings this eschatological perspective to the genuine believers there. If he's coming again and everyone will be accountable and we will all be exposed, how then shall you live? That's why Peter is writing. He's directly addressing the issues of the day. He's directly addressing the issues of the day that have spilled into the church and have warped the minds of those who claim to know Christ, the world will be dissolved. The judge of all the earth is coming. Everyone will give an account, and all of the evil in the world will be consumed. As we wait, he says in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The King is coming to address all of this garbage and to set the crooked straight and usher His people into eternal bliss. Whether they're persecuted or falling under these false teachings… Peter's trying to correct what was taking place at a particular time in history. Struck by the words that we sang, I always am, this morning. Do you feel the world is broken? 
how profound that is. Is all creation groaning from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 until the heavens and earth are dissolved? I understand within this context and biblical Christianity, the battle belongs to the Lord. But I also understand that we are soldiers. We are the ones carrying the torch. We are the ones proclaiming the truth. We are the light that speaks into darkness. We are the salt that stops the perversity of the world. But if the church is silent, the consequences are dire. To these false teachers, this notion of a coming in judgment couldn't be reconciled with their sensual lifestyle. If you are truly accountable to a holy and righteous God, now you really can't do anything you want to do, can you? But if He's not coming and I'm not responsible, then all bets are off. I can do whatever I want to do. These are the things that Peter is addressing in real time. And I marvel at how closely related it is to the day and age in which we live constantly receive criticism about being too political, and I can't say this enough. You're, you're wrong. You're wrong for a lot of different reasons. The biggest is it's not politics. It is a clash of worldview that defines our present reality. We either believe that He's coming in judgment, and everyone will give an account, or we don't believe that. And if He's coming in judgment and everyone will give an account, it will change how we live. If we don't believe that, it will change how we live. There's nothing political about that. It has been made political in our culture. And shame on church leaders who who dodge the issues of the day by saying, oh, that's too political. Isn't Peter dealing with a political culture of sensuality in Rome? Of course he is. But he's dealing with it because it slipped in and spilled into the church. Why does that happen? Because the church doesn't address it outside of the church. That's why that happens. We're not salt and light. Now, will evil prevail in this day and age? Yeah, because Satan is the prince and the power of the air. But we cannot be silent, and we can't remain complacent. When we look at the Western civilization, particularly the United States, there can be no doubt that it was based on a Judeo-Christian understanding and worldview. Even our founding documents tell us that uh, we, in founding this country, based our reliance on the providence of God. And what you might not understand is there are serious implications to that. If we rely on the providence of God, that must mean we understand that we have a transcendent God. We have a God that is above us and a God who makes the rules. In fact, our our very judicial system and moral ethos in Western civilization was based on God's rules. They made it so profoundly clear that the very basis of liberty is morality and religion. They saw all men as equal and all rights as not bestowed by the government, but bestowed by God. Why does that matter? Because we are living in a similar culture to that Rome today. And in this cosmic battle of good 
and evil, this battle of right versus wrong, this battle of true truth that is objective and grounded in reality, and twisted truth that is subjected and grounded in the here and now, has an impulse to destroy. What we are watching happen in our world today in this impulse to destroy is the unraveling of the world as God has made it to be. Mine goes back to Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sights. Isaiah dealt with the same thing. You don't make the rules. You don't get to decide. You will all answer to a holy and righteous God, whether you're inside or outside. You will all answer to a holy and righteous God. But this whole political facade that causes us to dodge the real issues of the day creates more harm than it does good, and it sends the message that the Bible is a message of world denial. We don't have anything to do with this world. After all, we don't live in this world. Listen, we're of this world until we hear the sound of the trumpet, aren't we? And because of that, we're assault and light. That, that's just a dodge. There's a clash of worldviews playing out before our very eyes. And for those who say, well, the Bible never deals with it, let me just suggest that it always deals with it. Most of these epistles were written for a reason, to deal with error or heresy. Why did you suppose that Paul dealt with the issue of, of sexual morality and marriage? Because the culture had unraveled all of that and embraced all kinds of perversity. Paul was dealing with the cultural issues. He was dealing with Rome as a nation. He was saying that as Christians, we don't live that same way. Why did he deal with the issue of slavery? Because that was the issue of the day. Up to, upwards of 60% of Roman citizens were, were slaves, not in a Western kind of world, but, but that slavery was real. Why does Paul deal with the issue of human institutions? Why does Peter? Remember what we talked about? Hupotasso, placing yourself under willingness, submission? Why does he deal with law and order, the present persecution, the warning of an idolatry and the end-time lawlessness? Why does He deal with idleness? Because He knows we're all accountable. He knows we're all going to answer someday for all of this. And our Christianity has got to be built to such a degree that it impacts how we live in this present life. But you do understand the complications and the implications when a culture at large and when a church at large turns a blind eye to, to much of what has taken place. You see, if there is no transcendent God, if there is no transcendent morality or ethos, if there is no ultimate accountability where we all stand before a Creator God and give an account, life has no meaning. The here and now is all that matters. And the elimination of God in our culture is not just a political matter, it is a worldview matter. And if God is not present, 
life becomes a vicious circle of insignificance and nothingness. One writer clearly stated, if there is no God, life is simply a cruel joke. False teachers were saying, don't worry about God. There is no judgment. He's not coming. The false teachers were saying, you can do whatever you want to do. You are the final arbiter. Nobody can tell you what to do. But that can only, only be reality if there is no God, if there is no transcendent morality, if there is no structure and order to the universe. That only happens if we are accidental creatures and an accidental cosmos. If we're just kind of here, we just kind of appear through the process of evolution and there is no God, there's only naturalism, that is the void where this nothingness makes itself known in extreme pessimism and skepticism. And it's a philosophy of despair. Frederick Nietzsche declared that there is no objective structure in the world except for what we give it. Seems like we're living that out in our present culture, aren't we? The danger is there were false teachers bringing false heresies into the church and saying, that's true. Nobody can tell you what to do. You're the final arbiter. You're not accountable to anybody or to anything but your sensuality. And those two primary issues that Peter addresses are critical to be addressed today. Interestingly enough, Nietzsche himself knew that if, if indeed there is no objective standard or structure in the world, eventually all moral, religious, and metaphysical convictions would go away, and it would create the greatest crisis in human history. Welcome to the party. This is the world that we live in. The danger is, Peter is saying, they're bringing that world into the church and telling you, there are no rules, do whatever you want. And the only way that they can maintain that reality is to tell you that there is no ultimate accountability. There is no one you will answer to or answer for. You keep talking about this Jesus coming as conquering king. Where is he? That's a myth. He's not coming. And when you erase that ultimate consequence of accountability, and when you live in extreme skepticism, it leads to a nihilism or a nothingness in life, and it is so reminiscent of what the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. What a critically important phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. Living life under the sun as if there is no God and ultimate accountability results in all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is a big waste of time. It is meaningless, but life is not meaningless. It matters. It matters to God. And the world will come up with a handful of nothing, but God's people will be rewarded in heaven for eternity. He's dealing with this kind of stuff. It's starting to, to slip its way into the church, starting to get to this place of 
such strong individuality that we want what we want and no one should stand in our way because this is the way I believe it should be. God is not dead, and you will give an account. I'm not even sure we as Christians sometimes live under that ultimate reality that Jesus is coming again, and you shall give an account of every word that comes out of your mouth and every decision you've made in your Christian life that is sobering, that is frightening, that is scary. If we don't live with an eschatological perspective, we will sit by idly twiddling our thumbs when the powers that be march millions and millions and millions of people to ultimate destruction in a world without God. Our very evangelism is based on the eschatological truth that Jesus is coming again, and there will be grave consequences for that. These false teachers said, don't worry about that, it's not going to happen. We as Christians, in our truncated thinking, fail to connect the dots and tell the truth in our world. The human mind is the most wasted of the natural resources at our disposal. Sociologists and scientists say that we use 2 or 3% of our mind, maybe 10% at the outside. Perhaps that's a consequence of the fall. I happen to think part of that is. But it's also a reflection that sometimes it's easier just to go along to get along rather than to really think through the things that matter most. You're going to see that Peter, as he addresses these false doctrines and heresies, starts with the mind and takes us back to the mind over and over and over again. No, knowing, no, knowing. Knowledge, no, no, knowing. Make no mistake about it, there are no neutral human minds, and we learn of that clearly in Romans chapter 1. Is the church prepared to counter twisted truth? Are we ready to take the knowledge that we have of God, a decisive knowledge, based on the conversion of Christ and the Christian faith that has real personal implications? Do we wish to know and do the hard work of knowing to acquire an understanding and an answer to any man who gives us a hope that is in us that has very practical ethical applications? Are we willing to say to people, no, you don't get to do whatever you want to do, and here's why? Do we have that answer? Well, it's provided for us through all the bells and whistles in, in the church that Peter's speaking into in, in Asia Minor, I sense that we have a very similar problem today. We've not connected the dots in our minds about the truth that is transcendent in nature and changes everything. Sensuality is rooted in a moral libertinism that basically says there is no real authority nor any real moral boundaries. I get to do what I want to do. Paul warns us that we're not to be taken captive by the empty, deceitful words of human tradition and false philosophy. The big question in life is, does my life 
have meaning. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to know why you have meaning? Because there is a God, and He created you in His image, and He has a purpose for your life. It's no wonder that the world has no sense of meaning, because there's emptiness everywhere. But there's emptiness in the church because we failed to reconcile biblical theology with everyday kind of living. But there can be no purpose to life if there's no consequence for living. Did you follow that? There's no purpose to life unless there's a consequence for living. And unless there's a day of reckoning, unless there's a time in which we will all give an account, there is no purpose to life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's our culture. That's even in the church. And Peter says, no, no, no. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind, your knowing, your connecting the dots. I'm stirring up your, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the, our apostles, your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing and will follow their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? We are not accountable to anybody. Peter said, they're wrong. They're wrong. Paul, writing to Pastor Titus and Titus 2 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Counter to the sensuality of the world, counter to the sensuality deeply ingrained and rooted in these false teachers and these false heresies. We need to be careful and sober and righteous and self-controlled in this present age. And why? Titus, you ask, because we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. How do you go about your day? How do you look at these people who are living in sensuality? How are you engaging this culture that has done everything it can to erase the notion of a transcendent God, yet we know they will all answer to that very same God? If we truly believe that Jesus is coming, how can we not speak up and speak into this world and against these false teachings? How can we not? Well, because it's just political, Pastor Jim. We don't have to deal with that. You're telling me that you don't care that your neighbor is going to stand in the presence of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, be cast into the lake of fire for eternity? That doesn't matter to you? Oh, God forbid, how did we get? You've never met a mere mortal. It matters. 
and I'm tired of all the nice little things we do in church with three points and a poem, and we got all our ducks in a row, but it doesn't matter when we go talk to our neighbor who's been captive to the system and has no hope, and life is meaningless, and we know the meaning of life. Where is it found? It is in Christ crucified, full of glory, and His salvation of your souls. Amen? Amen. So, what are you going to do about it? You see, we'll attack the false teachers. How can they say Jesus isn't coming? I wonder if we're not equally responsible because we know He is, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying you're perfect. Most of us are one decision from a train wreck in our life, right? We're not home yet, but at least we believe we will be and everything's going to be okay. How can we not take that message to a lost and dying world? As R.C. Sproul says so clearly, right now counts forever. What you're doing today, in this moment, in this hour, in time and space, matters for eternity. Every idle word, every thought, every behavior, and we're not home yet. So, what does it do? It drives us to our Savior. And in the darkness of the world, we, we sing, I will wait for you. I will wait for you till my soul is satisfied. This is about Savior. It's never been about you. But you notice the connection. If you eliminate accountability, you empower radical individuality. It's happening everywhere in our culture and even in the church. So what are we to do about it? If you look at verse 3, after pronouncing this glorious salvation that provides us equal standing with the apostles in Jesus Christ, we're reminded that His power through salvation has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have everything that we need. There are untold blessings to the Christian life. There's truth that, that answers every question pertaining to life and godliness, life and a fear of God and a, and a lifestyle that is in keeping with that fear through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. God who has called us in Christ Jesus to salvation has given us a deep and genuine life-changing kind of faith. It changes everything and right now counts forever. And in this effectual calling to salvation, we become partakers or a part of the glorious nature, the radiant glory of our King, and we are called to excellence. In fact, we are told by Paul that the Holy Spirit and the Word are shaping us and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, to His glory and His excellence that will be achieved when we see Him and finally become like Him. As we shed this sinful skin and the lust of the flesh that we have that creates these battles day by day by day in the Christian life. 
And every one of you has those battles. And every one of you fails in that obligation, but Jesus never fails. It's the glorious nature of the gospel. He's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, including ultimate accountability and His coming, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. Not that you will be gods, not that you will be like God in some kind of of deity kind of way. No, these great and precious promises into the, to the most extreme superlative provided through the ministry of the Holy Spirit allows us to be partners in Christ and the union that we have in Christ, living what we know in and through Christ assures us that at that time of accountability, we've done all to prepare ourselves. John Calvin says, then let us mark that the end of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God, like God, obedient to God. Why? Because we have escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, having escaped. You know how you escape the evil and the corruption in this world? In Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Sensuality makes much about me. Biblical Christianity makes much about Him. So we learn to live. Maybe you've heard this before. Quorum Deo. In the face of God, moment by moment, day by day, knowing that we will give an account. And because His grace and mercy, not, not your inherent goodness, but because of His grace and mercy, it is all for sole Deo glory, for the glory of God alone. When that mindset captures you, You then begin to learn what it means to live soberly and righteous in this present age in spite of your sinful desire. So now that we've got that, he says in the text, we'll read it and move on next week to this, for this very reason, because you're different than the world, you do have the answers, Uh, stand against these false teachings, stand against this lack of accountability, stand against this, 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 this notion of sensuality, and make every effort. This is your part now to supplement your faith with virtue, morality, uprightness, with virtue, knowledge, continuing to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how he ends the epistle. Knowledge with self-control, very opposite of sensuality and self-control with steadfastness, staying the course no matter what. I sense that that is the particular and greatest challenge of the day and age in which we live. Are we going to stay the course, or are we going to be convinced that it really doesn't matter? It does matter. 
Every day matters, and it's all for the glory of God. And steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, it is a process, it is, it is a progress, it is, it is something that takes place in this path of spiritual growth over time. It doesn't happen immediately. I am so thankful for that because if it happened immediately, I begin to wonder, am I okay? It's just like you. I struggle. Just like you, I tend to keep it all up here and think that that's enough. No, every day we struggle and we fight and we make every effort. And if we are pressing forward, we won't be perfect, not till we see Him, but it will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Because if you know Him, what He says matters. Your life counts forever. And you are to live soberly and righteous in this present age because there is a time of accountability and a day of judgment, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And it is all because of Jesus Christ. Flip over to the end of the epistle. We'll close there today, but return to this text next week. You therefore, Peter says, beloved, knowing this beforehand, all of these things that we have spoken of and he speaks in the text, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You see, even God's people can get distracted. Peter says, be careful. Be careful of the cunning these false teachers, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, listen to this. This is great. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen and amen. It's never been about you. To Him be glory forever and forever. Pastor Jim, it's hard. Yeah, I get it. In Christ, everything's going to be okay. He's the source of our help and our hope and our right thinking and our right lives. To Him be the glory forever and forever. We must learn to make much of Jesus every moment of every day, knowing that we shall give an account. The false teachers and the world at large, both in Peter's time and now, we're preaching a totally different message. May you know, and may the truth set you free indeed. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the promises that we have in Christ. Thank you that in all of our bumbling and and all of our, our stirring and all of our challenges and all of our failures, thank you that you are enough. Thank you that you know the end from the beginning. Thank you for allowing us to live soberly and righteous in this present age. Father, thank you that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, 
We can wait for you in that coming day, believing and knowing that everything's going to be okay. May the peace of God rest on us through that reality, both now and forevermore. And to Him alone be glory forever and forever. Not just right words, God. Right actions. In a terribly broken world. To God be the glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.